0: reading from the gospel of mark
1: the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god as is written in isaiah the prophet behold i send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make his path straight john appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of judah and jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river of the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with Carmel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. tie. I have to baptized to you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth the Galilee and was baptized in By John the Jordan, and when he came up out of the water immediately, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, "You are my beloved Son; with you I am well pleased." The Spirit, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, This time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, and believe in the gospel. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading, Roosevelt. um, Rosie, before you go down, the kids are invited to Kids Church, that you may be seated. Um, before Rosie goes down, as many of you have noticed, there's a Gospel of Mark probably sitting somewhere near you, um, and one of the things that, that Rosie and I have been doing since they showed up at my house not long ago is, your pictures are better than mine, you can show, is, is we've been illuminating the text of the Gospel of Mark and taking notes on the side and such, so if you don't have a copy Um, There's some up here on the communion table, Uh, there's some laying on the pews, but the goal is, is, you can go down now. Um, um, The hope is, when we do Mark, particularly, um, it's it's an easier gospel to live in. It's one that has a shape to it, it has a distinct form, it has a way in which we can sort of live with it um, differently. And it's one that I often say you can read all the way through in one sitting or in two sittings if you'd like, whereas Matthew and Luke and John get a little long, Um, maybe two or three sittings, maybe four. Um, But Mark seems like the length where you can really sort of get into it. So the goal, and I know some of you take notes during the sermon. You can use them for that as well. But the main thing is to sort of have these to read them first. Um, Rosie and I have had fun marking them up and drawing in them, but my hope is that having this, and this is, you know, easier to carry around, um, at the end of the day, I think with the box I got, they were very cheap, so you can spill coffee on them, you can, um, throw them in your backpack, uh, you can have the cover fall off and tape it back on. if you beat it up so much that it's lost, uh, I can get you another one, like, um, but, uh, but this Sunday is, is the Baptism of the Lord Sunday, which is sort of this time that starts this Epiphany season that leads into Lent, that leads into Easter. And at Defiance Church, one of the things we do every Baptism of the Lord Sunday is start a new gospel that we walk all the way through till Easter. So last year was uh, Matthew or Luke, the year before that was Matthew, the year before that was John. And this is just one of those cycles of getting to know Jesus in one of his particular portraits. And one of the ways that we get to see him um, from beginning to the end as the way um, an early Christian community might have have discovered him with one narrative. Back in the the time of the New Testament, it wasn't as obvious that you would have a collection of 66 books printed in font that's barely size 8 with super thin paper so that you could carry it around with you. If you had access to a gospel, it was almost certainly one of them. And not, not only that, you would hear it probably more than you would read it you would hear it read aloud so this week in the weekly email i'm going to link to a couple different resources that also you can listen to the gospel of mark now brian and I don't think it's on Amazon anymore, but it is on YouTube, a couple of them, of of famous actors, normally in Britain, so not famous to us. So you might be like, I know that guy from somewhere. Um, That's my relationship to British actors normally. Um, They were in something as the British person. Um, But if you uh, have a chance to put it on and to listen to it, either all the way through or when you have time and pick it up, that would be the way in which the Gospel of Mark was originally heard. And there's some people who argue that the Gospel of Mark as a, as a gospel is almost formed as a liturgical text. To be read aloud to the people who are gathered. It was part of a church service to begin with. It was part of narrating this gospel. And so it's, it's funny, I, I don't, there's two things I have to explain today. One, people are like, what's with the four animals? Well, the top one's a guy. Um, and these are from the book of Ezekiel, four beasts described in one of the visions. And classically, the church tradition has ascribed each of the four beasts to one of the Gospels. Matthew represented, and the reasons for this vary. Um, even if you go back to the original sources, it's not quite clear why they picked the ones that they did. But, but Matthew is, is envisioned as a man um, with wings. And it has to do with him beginning with the genealogy of sort of tracing the Gospel in that way. Luke is pictured with an ox, and and they often talk about how Luke, and it is interesting, Luke seems to have a higher role for the sacrificial sort of temple setting of of the Old Testament. Jesus goes to the temple several times. Mary, after he's born, brings animals to sacrifice. Um, There's a relationship to the sacrificial mode of that gospel. Um, John, uh, the bottom one, is pictured by an eagle. That has to do most people say with the cosmic scope in which John is, is sort of taking this gospel from 10,000 feet. He's looking at what does this mean in all its theological glory rather than or, or with just giving the narrative. So the other three gospels, the top one's called the synoptics, share sort of a narrative structure in common. John shares a theological structure in common but tells the story from sort of above. And then Mark is a lion, um, and reasons for this have to do with Mark sort of being the one who who pushes the gospel and its its intensity and its immediacy. This is the one where we sort of think about Jesus uh, disciples as followers of the way. There's lots of following in Mark. One of my favorite books I like on the the co- Mark is called In the Company of Jesus, and it has to do with the people who would follow him and go with him and be with him. Um, so that's the the image we we put that up every time we start one of these and it stays up till probably around advent but that's the explanation for that the word of the lord which i've never really explained but one of the best explanations i think for it is it participates us all in the scripture reading the word of the lord thanks be to god is to say that the the scripture was read by one person but in that responsive moment where we do that we've all participated in the reading of scripture it's all of us doing that so it comes at the end of the reading, um, uh, and, and that's the way it sort of plays. Um, this, this Sunday that we start the Gospel of Mark together, we begin to journey with this Gospel that has its unique take on who Jesus is and how we understand him and how he moves and acts and goes through the world. The first 15 verses that Roosevelt read for us are, are often called the prologue to the Gospel of Mark. They're the thing that sort of sets the scene for the whole gospel of Mark. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with Matthew or Luke, though the, what we blitz through there in 15 verses is about two or three chapters thick in both of those gospels. Mark just hits the ground running and begins to go, and he doesn't stop. But what he does in these first scenes, and we'll read the quote on the back of the bulletin in a second. I've been warned to slow down on when I read written stuff out loud. And then after Roosevelt, it's like it's it's a genetic people. And there's 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 uh you're asking me to war with nature. Um uh but uh that was a side note. Um, um but what Mark uh does is he sort of um piles up these images and they're the images that go out through the rest of his gospel now one of the things that i've learned in time of sitting with mark um, is that this prologue sets up mark as sort of cosmic warfare it sets up Mark as this cosmic mission in which Jesus is performing exorcisms on all the satanic stuff that exists in the world. First, he binds Satan in the wilderness. We'll talk about that as we get there. But then his, his movement throughout, the, especially the early parts of the gospel, is in casting out demons. He's reclaiming God's territory. And in that, in his healings, there's signs of this kingdom, this other thing, in which Christ is going out and, and um, restoring things to their proper place. And so what happens in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark is this um, heavy-laden image-based thing in which the whole thing is portrayed as this way in which there is one who's coming who's been whispered of in old. In Isaiah the prophet, that's what it starts with. And this one is fulfilled, and he is coming and reclaiming what's God. What's God's? One of my favorite scenes in the Gospel of Mark comes in Mark 3. Um, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to the temptation scene. Just It's the binding the strong man scene. That Jesus said, as a, as a house divided its itself, against itself cannot stand. And he says, first, you must bind the strong man before you can go in and plunder the goods. Growing up in a nice, good household, reading that out of context, I often thought, Oh, somebody's trying to bind up Jesus and steal his stuff. Um, Because Jesus wouldn't be somebody who binds up somebody, breaks into their house and steals their stuff. Sounds about right. Except for in the context of Gospel of Mark, Jesus is the one who binds the strong man. The one who's distorted God's creation. And then plunders the house, restoring things to God as they belong. Um, And so that, you see that in the beginning. We'll read that quote on the back of the bulletin. The opening scenes of the Gospel of Mark remind one of minimalist theater, collapsing a world of meaning into a few concentrated images of a Karasako painting with vivid profiles etched in dark, obscure backdrop. Punctuated by divine voices offstage and human cries at the center, the prologue narrates the story of an invasion, throwing existence as usual into sharp relief. Prophetic muses long silently suddenly sing again. A messenger is announced and in turn heralds the advent at long lost of one strong enough to wrestle the world away from the death grip of the powers. This leader appears on the horizon of history and in a dramatic symbolic faction action declares himself an outlaw. This immediately provokes a challenge from the prince of powers himself who takes the leader deep into the wilderness where he disappears. In this prologue, Mark wields together a synth of apocalyptic symbols, uh, clearing narrative space from among the weeds so that the seeds of a radically new order, to borrow the the author's own metaphor, might be pressed into the weary soil of the world. This subversive story is what Mark entitles good news. Here, the beginning of the good news of about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written. This is the opening of Mark's gospel and its intensity. There's a, there's, before we get into the meat of the sermon, which I probably should have done first, is there's a structure to Mark that I think is helpful uh, to sort of think about. Verses one through, or chapters one through eight, talk about Jesus' ministry about Israel. He moves about. Um, it begins with these words, the beginning, which we'll talk about in a second, um, but then it sort of goes to Peter's confession at the end of chapter 8 when Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? And what happens there is Je- Peter <laughs> responds that you're the Christ, the Messiah. From there, they have the transfiguration. Hey, the, the mountain. Kim, I did a good job, right? Um, the transfiguration, Jesus being declared on the mountain again, which actually mirrors that starting scene. Um, the voice from heaven speaks again. Um, And so it mirrors the scene we're going to go over today. And from there, Jesus begins to sort of intently go about his way, rising in opposition towards Jerusalem. In each of the Gospels, the three, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of have this shape, too, is that once it's confessed by human lips who Jesus is, he begins to go more and more towards where his journey will end in the cross in Jerusalem. And then it... um, uh, ends with the resurrection. Mark um, famously's ending is, and then they told no one, which begs the question of how do we know this then? Um, uh, there's, there's a gap there that sort of pushes you back into the story, and then they told no one. And there's a bit, uh, the reason why the line continues at the top is because Mark's, Mark, unlike most of the books we read, although I'd argue that more books are trying to do this than not, wants to project that we live then this story into the future, Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee is what it says. And so we go and follow Jesus again as he is one who goes ahead of us into other places in our life. If you've been um, uh, baptized into the faith, into the gospel of Mark, the story calls you to keep following after him. That's the shape of the story. So that's sort of how Mark's work and its narrative shape. And the way that we do this liturgically at Defiance Church is ministry about, we'll do in the Epiphany season all the way up to Advent, or Lent. Um, and then in Lent, we'll do his journey forward to Jerusalem as we look at what the cross means as we're going towards that. So that's, if you want to think about that, within the shape of our worship service. Um, but that's, that's sort of where Mark goes as an image. This is then the outline for how we're going to talk about the first 15 chapters. Not 15 chapters, 15 verses. Um, uh, and you can, you can see sort of the thickness of what Mark does he- here, is, is the way he, he tells the story with all these things loaded up. Um, and I'll make short comment on each, but, but the first one, well, the se- first one goes with the second thing. The first is that uh, in the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of, of Mark, is this, this throwback in two ways. One is it's it goes back to what Jonathan read for us during the worship. Said if you're um, a Jewish Christian at this time or somebody becoming into the faith, you would be being told of stories of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering in the over the waters. And the Lord spoke. Now, this beginning is, is mirrored in the Gospel of Mark 2. There's Jesus gets into the waters, and this dove descends on him. Mark, is, Mark, as is Genesis 1, in certain ways, heavy with sort of three actors of God. Genesis 1, you have the Lord who speaks his word going forth. The opening of John calls him the word. Um, and then uh, you have uh, the spirit like a dove in the language of the Hebrew or bird, hovering over the teeming waters. So too in the Gospel of Mark, you have the Father who sends the Son, or the Son uh, appears, and there's a spirit that sort of comes on him, and it's declared that this one is is sort of the Son of God. So you have these three actors here too in the Gospel of Mark. And so they have a a Trinitarian, a a Trinity-based relationship in the way that they're structured. The other way In the Beginning works is this and we'll see it as we walk through this first 15 chapters, is that there's a belief that comes from the prophet Isaiah, who is the next character who appears, um, that the end, in some sense, will mirror the beginning. The fulfillment of what God is going to do is bring God people back into harmony the way that they were in the initial creation. So Jesus' temptation in the wilderness with wild beasts and that uh, portrays Adam's story in an interesting way. And it's Jesus in this passages of Mark, who uh, we won't get into it today, but one who faithfully lives Israel's story too. In 15 verses, he's given us a lot to work with. <laughs> And so that, that, that gospel word that he uses next, we, we talked about this a lot in the Galatian series, that this is the Evangelion of God. Now Mark uses this word, which I could remember, but let's say 15 times. Paul uses it like 60 times. And then the rest of the New Testament doesn't use it as much. But Evangelion in this first century context was good news from a battlefield most often. It was declaration of something big that had happened. And so while gospel has turned into a music form in our time, in the first century, gospel was the proclamation of the radical thing that was happening. It was news of something big that had happened. It was news that, that was in the kind of way that was like, even if you ignored it, it was still true. It was news of what um, often was from a faraway battle, a messenger would come with a, a, an evangelion, good news that they had, had won the battle. And so here, Mark, in his opening, is even portraying this as sort of a cosmic battle. This is the beginning of the good news of God invading the cosmos in his son Jesus and beginning to restore it to what it was. This is the beginning of the good news of the God who takes residency in the world. What I want to hear, and this goes to this next word, this Isaiah reading, is that it assumes that we can hear and know of the darkness of our world. The beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, out of context, begins to be like the beginning of more good things, um, beginning of this. But what it's announcing is that there is darkness that resides in this place. That Isaiah reading is actually Isaiah, uh, Malachi, and Exodus put together. Um, But what happens there is these are all texts that come out of the darkness and difficulty of Israel's history. The weary world is what the song from Christmas says and what that quote on the back of the bulletin says is that the soil of the world um, has been turned against its creator and in that darkness and in that difficulty, this is where it begins to turn back because, um, and they'll talk about this, that the author of, of the the play himself has stepped back onto the stage to restore it. That, that the creator in, in the form of Jesus God has come back um, to begin this reclamation mission. And so this text in, in, that ends with repent and believe the gospel is narrating great difficulties and anguish in our world and the hope that comes into that. And yet so often I think it's hard for us to hear that it's hope that comes into the darkness of the world. Now, the first century hearers, the the Jews, um, would know of that deeply because they're being conquered and ruled by the Roman Empire. Things are not as they should be. But the early Christians, there's evidence that Mark 2 comes out of a persecuted community most likely at this moment, in their relationship to want to stay a part of the synagogue with this Jesus news, but being cast out um, in some way, that, that there is beginning to be a disjunction between those two communities. So they're losing their places of worship, the places in which they've resided, the places in which they've heard the good news as, as sort of persecuted ones. Mark's going to talk about the loss that comes with the life of discipleship. To be able to walk in this way is not all good and grand news. He says, what was lost will be restored to you. But there is loss that comes with walking the path as well. Um, So Isaiah, we did two Sundays on John the Baptist in Advent, um, uh, but, but John the Baptist appears on the scene in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is one who's sort of this one who's making straight the ways for the one who's going to come after him. And it says the whole Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins that were baptized in the River Jordan. Baptism at this time um, would have been an act most likely convert for converts or ritual washing. Um, if you take it as the convert one, there's a bit of a, what God's going to do in Jesus Christ is open up this community for Gentiles and converts to come and move in, and we're all participating in that. If you take it as a ritual washing one, it's this way in which we prepare ourselves for this repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's the way we, we, we begin to set ourselves in a new direction. Confessing their sins, they were baptized with him in the Jordan River. And he ate locusts and wild honey. John's portrayed as this one in this prophetic role. And his message was this After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The first sort of instance here of, of naming this Holy Spirit that Jesus is going to receive in the next scene. And he says that he's unworthy to to untie the sandals. It's interesting at this time, if you followed a rabbi, if you were the student of a rabbi, you were to do everything for the rabbi except for untie his sandals. Because in some ways, that was too lowly. You shouldn't have done that. Uh, It's it's asking too much of the students to untie the rabbi's sandals. Um, Which becomes interesting that John says, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. He's reversing this and saying that the one who comes after him is going to come from sort of a different place or plane. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the early Christians remembering that which they received in their baptism. The Spirit, um, as many of us know, just in a short note, is, is this thing that, that um, is active in the Old Testament in various guises, um, descends on Jesus in his baptism and resides in the community of faith, either in John's Gospel, near the crucifixion, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, after the crucifixion, the, God, the Spirit sort of comes among them in the resurrection, and that's how they are to, to sort of be out there in the world. It, it enacts before then, but it's true, residing with the church comes at that moment afterwards. Um, one of the things that I, as you read the Gospel of Mark, if you start it this week, is I think that we should be very kind to the disciples. And lots of people use them as a foil, um, as, as people who are like, how did they not get it? It's like, one, the Spirit enables our hearts to truly get it. So they're at a bit of a disadvantage. Second, um, do we really think we're going to do that much better? There's this scene where um, uh, Peter gets out of the boat and walks on water. He loses sight of Jesus and gets scared and sinks. And everybody can give a sermon about how Peter could have done better. And it's like, there were 11 other guys on that boat that did nothing. Um, And so as we read the gospel, as you read through this, it's important to remember, one, that the Spirit hasn't come to reside in the disciples' hearts yet. And two, um, as we see in the next scene right after this one, they've left everything to go and follow him. These are not easy things to do. We should have grace with the disciples. And in that way, in turn, have grace with ourselves. Um, and that, that is um, John. Uh, the next scene is this baptism scene. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, "'You are my Son, whom I love.'" With you, I am well pleased. This scene, recorded in in three synoptic gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have this similar flavor to them, in which Jesus comes out to the wilderness um, and he's received, the Spirit descends on him from heaven, and a voice declares that this one is his son, this divine identity. Here, too, we see. Uh, the church rehearsing its baptism. It's by this spirit and through Jesus' act, we become children of God. The church still ritually incorporates people by getting in the water and receiving baptism too so that they can receive the message that they are children of God and that the spirit comes upon them in that moment. But what's interesting about Mark's telling of this story, and I should say that, the, that Jesus gets baptized was embarrassing to the early church. They had already developed that he was one without sin, and so why does he get baptized? Why does he go into the water? And, and there are some early church fathers that say, well, it's only an example so that we do it. Um, he's, he's doing it so we know what to do, which is uh, helpful, um, but two, maybe not it. My favorite, one of my favorite sort of understandings that comes from that um, early church time is that, um, is that it works the same way he heals people. He touches the unclean and makes them clean. Jesus gets into the water that was for the forgiveness of sins and, and repentance and doesn't take that onto himself, but his holiness makes that water holy. Um, it's, it's reverse osmosis is what Jesus is doing. And we see this as he heals and touches people and he violates the boundaries of cleanliness and uncleanliness in his world. He becomes one who can... Um, Bring light into the darkness, because he is light himself. We worry about becoming defiled, um, but Christ is one who, who goes as one who is undefilable and then actually, in a way, makes the undefilable or the defiled clean. This is an interesting message for Christians on mission, too. Too often we worry about, what if we get dirty? the fact of the matter is, adopted by Jesus, gifted in the Holy Spirit, we can go to lots of places because we are those empowered to bring holiness and light there. We're not those who live in fear of that. But Jesus is one who gets into the water, and what Mark has this way um, of, of describing what happens in heavens as a tearing. It's the same verb that's used when the temple is torn, shroud is torn at the end of Mark's gospel. Now, the other Two Gospels that have this scene talk about heaven being opened. But Mark's Greek word is that it is torn. And there's a phrase, I forget where it came from, but that what is open can be closed, but what is torn cannot be easily put back together. What happens in Jesus' descension into the water as heaven is torn open is that the Spirit comes and is released into the world. It's released into Jesus first and then into the disciples. This, too, we see in the tearing of the holy and holies at the end of the gospel, that this ripping has happened. The declaration that you are my son, I love, and I am uh, well pleased. We read Psalm 2 at the start of the service, which proclaims that you are my son and I am your father this day. Um, it relates in this way and that this prophecy is being retold again. And that's Psalm 1 is about the individual who sort of walks in, in the ways of, of, of faithfulness as a Jew. Psalm 2 is more about the nations and the king as they sort of walk in, in faithfulness, too. And, and so as the intro to the psalm, Psalm 1 and 2, we find um, things that are applicable to Christians and Jesus as we know the one who is the king and to walk faithfulness in our lives. And so uh, the Christological reading, reading that with Jesus' eyes, opens up with new readings to that. Um, as he is one sort of be, being declared king too at this moment. And at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. This is not the way I would have this go. Uh, you have received adoption as, as the Son of God. Now go to the place where Israel has failed, where darkness reigns, and be tested not by um, some guru, but by Satan himself. And, and then the Spirit in, in the Greek ekballos him. Um, the Spirit ekballos him into the wilderness. Uh, Ekbalo is the same Greek word for when Jesus casts out demons. The Spirit drives Jesus, casts him out into the wilderness for him to cast out Satan from his powerful place in the world. That Jesus goes out there in this time of testing in the wilderness, and angels minister him, and he was with the wild animals. In other Gospels, it seems like the animals are a threat, in Mark's gospel, this goes back to that theme we were talking about with restoration in Genesis. It seems like the animals are existing with him in the way that they existed with Adam. And that not only are they existing with him, if you follow Isaiah's reading, which, which Mark has already used for us, it's, it's the wolf will lie with the lamb. It's that is that as Christ goes out there, he goes as one who is tame with the animals. Creation itself is restored here as he is binding Satan in the wilderness. And the angels attended to him. And the story continues, uh, temptation, that the time is fulfilled. That the time has come, is what Jesus says, after John is cast into prison. That this moment has arisen. And N.T. And Wright, was, uh, this week as I was reading, he talked about this as a wake-up call. This is news that calls you to rouse yourself from your sleep. Begin to go about the world following this one. This is news. Um, uh, somebody else likened it to the to the airport that the flight is boarding. Um, it makes a call on you if it's your flight to go and board. And some of us can choose to ignore the news. It may not be our flight or time in this. But what Christ is saying, which is unique for him as a Jewish prophet, is that the time is fulfilled. Most of the other prophets say, a time is coming. Prepare yourselves. John prepares people. But Jesus says, time is up. Now is the time to decide. And this is is perhaps what gets him in trouble quite a bit. With me and with this kingdom is your decision point. The time has come, he declares. It's time for you to wake up. In this world of darkness and angst, of anxiety, the ways in which we keep ourselves endlessly entertained and amused, the time has come. And his message, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, repent. And believe the good news. The kingdom of God, which is this um, amazing sort of dominion of God, the reign of God, we pray for it in the Lord's prayer every Sunday together, and every time you pray it in your own house, that the kingdom of God would come. And the kingdom of God in Mark's gospel, and particularly in most places, is is present in Jesus Christ, in his life and in his activity. The reign of God is made manifest in the world. The reign of God is what, is what we see when we see Jesus act in his faithful ways, in his faithful life. So too then, the, the, the second meaning of the kingdom of God becomes that the kingdom of God is in some way hidden in the lives, have moved themselves into that reign, who choose to live in that place with this one as the one over them, to move into that dominion. It seems hidden in that. Now, one of the things, uh, the mission of Defiance Church, which is on the back of the bulletin, is to be a witness to the reign, or uh, I forget what it says now, the reign of God, um, reconciling all things to himself, is that we um, are witnesses to that. We are not that ourselves, and we can't get too confident about our role in that work, but we witness to it as it has appeared in Jesus Christ, and, and, and it can appear in our community, not through our own effort, but through the God who has established this reign. And the third is that there is more to come with this kingdom. The kingdom is not yet fully present in the world. The kingdom is what we await, as the church, as Jesus exists in its fullness. As the church can exist in it at times, in its, in its uniqueness and its hiddenness, and this, that, and the other. Its fullness has not yet come into the world. So that's why we wait for the return of Christ to set this place in order. But I end with the last two words. Repent and believe the gospel. The first, repent, as we've talked about many a times, is this is Greek word, menatoia, which involves a turning. It's, it's, in some sense, making a U-turn. It's heading in a new direction. It's taking on a, a different way. Um, uh, Calvin uh, talked about the first one as sort of leaving behind your old patterns But the second meaning of the word, to take on the patterns of the new creation, to have a conversion, to set yourself. And and Calvin said, leaving your old patterns is fine, um, but it's not worth much unless you set yourself in the new reign, unless you move into that new place. This is um, true in all times and places, the church can get in trouble for lamenting too much of the existence of the world at times. But what happens is, is that we have misformed ourselves in a misformed world. To repent is to turn from that misformation. We have idled ourselves in different ways. And so we repent and turn from that. But God doesn't leave us as those who are just called to leave behind something. But we are called to believe into something new. We're called to believe into that evangelion, that good news that not that just those things are like um, bad and you should stop them, but that what is binding humanity, what is destroying and distorting us has been defeated in this battle, this good news. And so we too are set in a new direction, in a new life, in a new path. We are empowered to walk in a different way. So that brings us to the end of today's sermon. But I will say the next one is actually people called, not the next sermon, the next text, if you read in it this week, is the next one is two disciples called into this path, into this believing, into this way of being. And so it is for us to be people who hear the message of Christ, that we repent Well, we hear that the kingdom of God is at hand We discern the contours of that kingdom by looking at Jesus and what the prophets have promised of old in Isaiah. And it's for us to hear the message of repentance, to live under that burden that we need to turn our lives towards that kingdom. And not to be left there, but to believe into, to trust into, to move into the good news of what God has promised us. Let us pray. God, you have given us the gospel of Mark so that we can hear the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. May we, in these condensed story that makes the first 15 verses, hear and see the beginning of the shape of this story, the form in which gospel is going to take. And as we read in our own lives, and our own time, and continue this journey, God. Give your spirit to us so that this may be the means by which we hear of your repentance. We see the contours of your kingdom, and we draw our hearts further into this good news. We ask that you be near to us now and guide us in these paths by the power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.